Welcome to Eat Blog Talk, where food bloggers come to get their fill of the latest tips, tricks, and insight into the world of food blogging. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll provide you with the tools you need to add value to your blog, and we'll also ensure you're taking care of yourself because food blogging is a demanding job. Now, please welcome your host, Megan Porta. Food bloggers, hey, are you looking for new ways to make money as a blogger? If so, we have got your back. We have launched an ebook called Conversations on Monetization. Inside this resource, we take your favorite podcast episodes about monetization and we put them all in one easy, accessible package. We threw a few exclusive interviews in as well. Friends, there are so many ways to monetize your food blog. Inside this ebook, we have interviews with success stories like Todd Bullock, Alyssa Brantley, Kelly McNellis, Jenna Carlin, and more. All of these examples have become successful through completely different monetization strategies. Whether you are a brand new blogger looking for your very first revenue stream, or you are a seasoned pro wanting to diversify, this ebook is for you. Go to eatblogtalk.com to grab your copy, and we can't wait to hear your success story with monetization. What's up, food bloggers? Welcome to Eat Blog Talk, the podcast for you. Food bloggers wanting value, information, and clarity that will help you find greater success in your business. Today, I will be having a chat with Jeff Hawley from hashtagjeff.com, and we are going to chat about SEO. Hashtag Jeff is involved with everything SEO for bloggers. He offers a course and performs audits for bloggers, especially in the food and recipe space. Jeff, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. Before we dive into SEO, we want to hear your fun fact. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, fun fact. So yeah, it's like um, this one's always kind of a, an interesting one just because I feel like it's so just wide open. But um, I would say... The one thing, I mean, I have like severe ADHD and so it like makes it so I easily get distracted. Um, but like I've like over the years, I've like learned how to manage it and stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it also like, I mean, it also kind of plays into just a lot of just like what we do, like with work and, and all that stuff. Cause, um, I mean, I would say that the biggest thing complaint I have about myself even just is, like in working with clients and stuff is sometimes we get behind and, and all that stuff. So, um, a lot of times that's attributed to that, but the, the benefit that I've found with having that is like, I'm able to really hyper-focus and work on these things and borderline obsess, <laughs> um, about all this. So yeah, so it's, um, growing up, it was, it was hard, but like, I've, I, I feel like I've turned it into kind of a, a strong point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really interesting. I was just talking to a blogger about this the other day, not ADHD specifically, but how some people, especially entrepreneurs, get super hyper laser focused in one yeah. area. And then there are people like me where I don't have a focus. I just like to do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting to see or to hear you talk about how ADHD plays into that. That makes me curious to know, like, what does that say about me? Because <laughs> I, I want to be, I, I wish I were more like you. And I wish I had just like one area that I was super good at. But I just don't. Don't, don't get me wrong. It, it, it comes with its drawbacks. I mean, m managing lots of projects and I mean, a wide range of things. That's why I have um, an assistant, like kind of like a, a business manager, sure. essentially. They kind of help me with that because... 
that's where I'm very deficient. <laughs> yeah, is, sure. And because I get easily distracted, so I have to like cut out everything. And mm. I mean, that's the only way I get stuff stuff done is if I'm if I'm able to hyper focus. Yeah, there are pros and cons, I suppose, to each side, but I see your point. Well, you're here to talk about SEO. You are the SEO guru and one who is very respected within our food blogging space. So speaking for everybody listening, we're just so grateful for your time today and the expertise you are bringing to the table. So thank you again for being here. The topic of SEO has exploded, as you know, Jeff, in recent years for food bloggers, especially, and a lot of us are really trying to dig into it in a new way. You have tons of knowledge to share, and I brought a few uh, kind of random specific questions for you that fall under this category that I've noticed food bloggers asking within our community and inside the forums. So thank you for tackling this very random list, and let's just get Started with that, the first question I sent over to you is one that I've seen repeatedly pop up. Can you shed light on when we should update old content and when we should not? There's a collective fear I've been sensing in the world of food blogging about when our posts are Mm -hmm. crawled by Google and how that's tied to updating content. Is there ever a time we should avoid updating content, like maybe when a post is ranked one through five in Google, and even if it is in positions one through five, is it okay to make small adjustments to a post? So give me your thoughts on that. Yeah. So this one, I mean, it's obviously kind of a, a big topic just in general. Um, and I do get a lot of, I mean, specific questions related to this. Um, so I would say before I dive into like that like specific question. Um, I would just say that I think it's important to kind of share my attitude in having just around SEO in general. Um, so I, in general, I would say that I don't fear Google. Um, when I first came into this like space and working with bloggers and and all this stuff, um, I felt like there was a, um, a lack of knowledge or awareness of SEO and Google and all that stuff um, over the last couple of years. I mean, that awareness has obviously gone up um, as, as the topic of SEO has grown and interest in it has grown and all that stuff. Um, and I think that naturally as people have become more aware of Google and kind of become more familiar and even confident with, with SEO and all that stuff, I think that's where the fear creeps in. Um, but like I said, personally, like my attitude with it is I have less of a, um, less of a fear. Like, I mean, I, I have more of a fluid approach to SEO in general. Um, so like, I, I would say that, I mean, in general, like it's, I think it's better to have a strategy around constant improvement and just understanding that there's going to be ebbs and flows. Um, the problem with having a fear of it is that, if like let's say that I create a post today and over the course of the next couple of months or weeks or whatever, um, I'm able to get that post to rank and it gets substantial traffic. Um, and let's say that I, I hold a like a top three or top five position position pretty consistently for um, a pretty good keyword there. Um, if we, which I mean that's obviously a really good scenario. So, um, but like if we fast forward to a year from now, two years, five years from now, like we have to understand that eventually that post is going to fall off or start to decline because it's starting, even though food in general and recipes like doesn't really get outdated. I mean, it's still kind of, kind of stagnates. Um, 
And so the reason I have this fluid or this like constant improvement is um, ideally, like in an ideal world, again, if you didn't have this fear of Google, like you would be constantly like touching and sharing and improving your posts, like re replacing an image here or there, like especially as those images, um, I mean, get older and I mean, things like that, not up to like your standards. So in general, like I would say that it's, that's a, a healthier approach to SEO is just to kind of have that. Um, that being said, let me just kind of produce kind of a few caveats is posts that produce a good portion or percentage of your traffic. Obviously, I mean, those I'm probably just going to kind of set aside um, and just say, I'm, I'm just in general, I'm not going to touch these. So that's where like I would have this not fear of Google, but I would have this safe space. I mean, it's kind of like out out in I mean the wilderness or or things like that. I mean, there's there's wild animals and going to Yellowstone, for instance. I mean, there's there's wild animals and you can approach them if you really want. But I mean, if you keep your like, I mean, there you just want to keep your space. Like you just want to understand that I mean, doing certain things can instigate. Um, sacred space, exactly. keeping it kind of sacred. Yeah. Um, and so like, if you have like a couple posts that have substantial organic traffic, I would say again, like that's, that's where I have kind of this safe space just so that, I mean, I don't hurt those ones. Um, but you can focus on, I would say, I mean, you're still, you still have 90, 95, 99% of your site that you can still touch. Um, it's just those, those few that bring in a substantial percentage of your traffic, if that makes sense. So not necessarily in top three of Google ranking, but more just looking at which ones are the top for your blog specifically in bringing in traffic. Correct. Okay. And you kind of have to like assess your own risk. So like, I mean, for some sites, 5,000 organic page views per month um, could be substantial risk for some larger sites, 5,000 organic page views might not be as much. Um, and so the risk is much lower to them. Um, and so they like, they're able to kind of approach that with a little less fear, I guess. Um, and yes, like I would, I would say that it's less about ranking and it's more about traffic because there's a bunch of other factors that come in. Um, so, so don't just look at, Oh, this is ranked top three. Don't touch it look at the organic traffic that that has gotten over the, the course of the last few months or last year or so, especially if it's more seasonal, um, just because you might not be in the season that it's in. Um, so yeah, so you, I, I would look at it as organic traffic. The other, the other thing is like a ranking for a smaller keyword versus a bigger keyword. Um, and that's where I like, it's, it's all, I mean, risk assessment. So it's like risk versus reward. Like if you're, you're ranked three for a lower keyword, but you have a higher keyword that it's also relevant for that has a lot of reward potentially. I mean, that's where it might be worthwhile to take a smaller risk to do that. Um, so yeah, so, um, and then you also have to look at the opportunities. So if it's, if it's a newer post, so if it's only a few months old and it has substantial content and it's well-written, I mean, a lot of keyword research, then the opportunity is a lot smaller in that case. Um, but if it's a post that's a few years old, so let's say it's two or three years old, um, it has a, like a lot of content, but maybe only has one image and no headings to me, the, the opportunity for improvement there is, oh, I can, I can include a few headings. I can break up that content and make it easier to, to read. 
Um, I could add a few images, maybe a few process shots to make it so that it, the re recipe is easier to follow. So right there, the opportunity for improvement was much more obvious. Also fast, like bringing something that's three years old forward and making it 2020 or 2021, um, as we approach there, I mean, that's, um, the opportunity there is higher. So, I mean, my opportunity for success, I would say is, does that make, does that make sense? Kind of how I explained it? So an older post, let's say I have something deep in my archives mm -hmm. that has potential, but it's got maybe one image and the copy inside is pretty thin content. Yeah. If I go in and add value to the post and add some new images, there's more opportunity there as opposed to like a newer post that you put up today. Mm -hmm. You put all that content in, but it's brand new. Is that kind of what you're saying? Correct. So the opportunity is greater with that older content that you can refurbish. Yeah. And then the opportunity I'm talking about is, yeah, is, is, is where it is now versus how much improvement you can make on it. And so, yeah, like adding content, um, improving readability with headings and bullets and other things like that, improving user experience. So images, video, like whatever that might be, um, things like that. I mean, those are all opportunities and the more and then also, Another opportunity that seems kind of weird, but like um, an old, like uh, refreshing something from older to like bringing it forward so it's current. Um, that date or that published time um, is also an opportunity as well. Um, so the more opportunities, that that's where I am much more willing to take on more risk because. I'm increasing my chances because I'm like, oh, okay, like there's all these opportunities that I, I, I have. And so that's going to decrease the amount of risk because of how much opportunity there is. Okay. That finally clicked uh, with me. That makes sense now. Okay. And the other opportunity I didn't mention was also seasonality or trend. So like during the summer, if I did like a, I don't know, like a Christmas cookie, like that's lower opportunity because I mean, it's not seasonal. Like the traction I'm going to get from that isn't quite as high. Whereas if I do that November, December, um, that's like something like a cook, a cookie that's more like Christmas, um, popular around Christmas. Um, that's another opportunity too, that's going to decrease that, that risk associated with it. So people like me who have a thousand or around a thousand old blog posts sitting in the archives, we really do have a lot of opportunity there because there's so much to improve on. I always see it as a detriment because it's like collecting dust and I have all this stuff that is not current photos that need to be retaken, but I should see it more as an opportunity to really let um, my content shine through Google. If you have a lot of older content that's relevant, that could be improved, especially yes, a like ton. Yeah, you sit on, you're sitting on a gold mine. Like that's that's my favorite SEO strategy is is working on existing content. Well, that's all I've been doing for six months. I finally got to the point this year where I was like done with new content. Mm -hmm. I cannot keep adding to this massive collection mm -hmm. of recipes. So for six months, that's all I've been doing is going back and taking the gems out, dusting them off, making them better. So I'm hoping that the fruits of my labor start to <laughs> start to grow from that. Okay, so you highlighted gauging opportunity is a great place to start. And I love how you framed that. And I think we can all think through our content in that way. 
How do we dive into the question I asked about if there's one specific post that needs a new pin graphic? I've seen this issue exactly come up in our community and people are hesitant to even put a new pin graphic inside of a post because they're afraid of being recrawled and then, you know, like all of the stuff we already talked about. So should we be afraid to do little things like that, make little tiny tweaks inside of our posts, whether they are um, getting the most traffic or not? So this fear stems from the reality that any changes we make can... So, well, let me step back one further. Google is constantly crawling and indexing our content. So even if we don't make changes, they like they may they may still they're still going to crawl, they're still going to index, they're still going to do all that stuff. Um, a lot of times, the changes that we make, um, where I mean, even though I mean we talk about it as triggering a recrawl because of an update and things like that, um, really where that stems from is that when we do that, um, that's also changing update the updated date in like our uh, our sitemap and stuff um, so I would personally I I would say that I don't have that fear in general um, again like I, I I try not to live in fear I would say that 99 times out of a hundred that's not going to do anything adding a, a pin or um, something on the back end like that um, but like I said where the fear stems from is, Basically, anytime we make a change, it can trigger a reaction of some sort. Um, but that being said, even without making changes, it can trigger a reaction. So, like, I mean, yes, I mean, you have to realize that there there may be an effect, but I would say that 99 times out of 100, maybe even 999 times out of 1,000, like, you're, you're not going to see any sort of reaction there, um, especially with something like a, a pin or okay. something like that. I tend to live kind of like you do, not in fear when it comes to my blog. And I do keep an eye on those uh, posts that generate a lot of traffic. And I try not to touch those much. But if there's something little that really needs to be updated, I do just go in. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. update anything huge. But I have always kind of lived under that rule too. Like if a pin graphic needs to be updated, yep. I'm going to go in and do it. And I haven't seen any hugely negative yeah. effects from it, but I get caught up in other people's fear and people are like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't change my pin graphic because I'm going to get recrawled. And then I start thinking, well, should I be worried about this too? So I'm really glad that you're talking about this because it helps me feel like I'm doing the right thing. Well, not that anyone's doing the wrong thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it gives me permission to continue doing what I've been doing. So if it helps, maybe instead of referring to the fear, it's talking about the opportunity cost of not doing that. Because if you have an old pin or don't even have a pin, I mean, you're going to diminish the authority that you can build through Pinterest and other strategies outside of um, outside of your site itself, which is what also impacts SEO. So if having a pin on there or even having an updated pin image is going to improve how you do socially um, on Pinterest and Facebook and all that all that stuff. Um, if that's going to improve there, then I would say that the opportunity is far outweighs the risk associated with it. Um, and so, like, it's it's thinking about like basically what 
what the positives are rather than the fear. Cause there's always going to be fear. Like there's always, I mean, you get into a car, I mean, there's, there's always going to be a fear of a car accident, but I mean, the odds are much smaller than the opportunity of getting from point A to point B or, or whatever that might be, you know? So well said, I love that the opportunity cost of not doing it versus fearing it. That's such a good way to look at it. And you have to think outside of Google too. If it's putting a Pinterest pin in your post, that's going to add massive value on Pinterest, then it's probably good to do that. Right. I mean, you shouldn't like you started this whole conversation with, we shouldn't fear Google. And I think the, the word fear in itself, if you're fearing anything to me, that just implies desperation Mm -hmm. and a whole host of negative things. And especially with a blog that you're thinking about all the time, if you attach fear to it, then for me, I think only bad things can come of that. So releasing that word fear and looking more at opportunity. You've said the word opportunity a handful of times and I love that, Jeff. That was very well said. Okay. Is there anything else on that topic? Um, Not really. I mean, there's going to be lots of questions around that. Like even even people listening are going to kind of have like scenarios and whatnot. So, I mean, I mean, that one has a bunch of connecting points, but I think that's a good foundation to have and stuff. And I mean, they can always reach out um, if they have a question about it. But yeah, like, I mean, my answer is going to be the same as just, I mean, yes, the fear is based on truth, but like really like it's, you have to like look at the opportunities and you have to look at, I mean, what you're missing out on by not doing it. Perfect. So another thing that I personally struggle with, and I know a lot of people listening are with me on this because, again, I see this uh, being talked about constantly in our community and on the forums, is how to do keyword research. And I know this, too, is like a topic in itself that you could probably talk endlessly (laughs) about. But in a nutshell, talk us through the best way to do keyword research. So, again, a big topic, like you said. Um, so if I was just kind of put this simply, I mean, it's going to be first and foremost is keyword research is not about SEO. It's not about Google. Um, keyword research is about, is about the user and it's about intent. So when you're doing keyword research, like forget keywords in and of themselves, like you're looking for topic and intent. So if I'm looking to do a banana bread recipe, like I'm, I'm looking at the intent of that, like. And I mean, technically, if I was just looking at the information ecosystem of banana bread, I could get go down the Wikipedia route. But really, that's not what this is about. Um, This is about somebody looking to make banana bread and having the tools and information that they need to make banana bread. So um, it's going to be determining first and foremost, like, what do I need to address for people to make this? Um, I need to also look to see what the the level of these users are. So it's um, like, are they experts in making recipes? So do I need to talk about like a little bit more in detail in um, mixing flour and ingredients or are they at a, um, yeah, are they higher level, lower level? Like what, what kind of level are they? And then um, also like there's also like, I mean, certain types of audience. So like banana bread, if you're going after a US based audience, I mean, you don't need to have much information about ingredients because I would say that those are probably mostly um, common ingredients for most uh, American English speaking audience. Um, whereas like if like if I'm 
going after like Asian cuisine or I mean Mediterranean or something like that where it has other things like that's where I have to determine how far down that rabbit hole goes based on my user like my readers understanding um, and then what they they need to accomplish the task at hand so the intent behind it um, so yeah so first and foremost I mean keyword research is is all about intent it's about knowing our readers and getting them from point A to point B um, as quickly and easily as possible. Um, and so when I'm doing keyword research, the tools that I use um, for first is Google. Um, I jump into Google and I do a search uh, for that keyword or similar keywords and I look to see what the intent is. Like um, when Google shows us these knowledge graphs and other information, um, that helps us to see what users are looking for. So like right now, like if I, if I look up pizza, um, I mean, I may be thinking pizza recipe, but if I look up pizza, I'm also going to get local like Pizza Hut and Domino's and, and all that stuff like like search results. Um, and then, I mean, some other things, whereas if I search banana bread, I might um, like I'm probably going to get just more recipe based information because the majority. And so what we take from that is basically Google is understanding users. And so if we see that mixed search result, that helps us to see that okay, a lot of people are looking for local places. They're also looking for recipes and other things like that. Um, but we'll also see questions. We'll also see like a bunch of things. And so you can, t I mean, if you don't have any paid tools, Google is honestly more than enough um, to do your keyword research starting out. That being said, you get to a point where if you can afford um, certain tools, I would definitely recommend them because they, again, you don't need them. They do make your job easier and it allows you to do things a lot quicker. So my go-to for keyword research is SEMrush. I still use Google first and foremost. I mean, that's that's the first place I go to, but then I'll use SEMrush for keyword research because again, it just kind of helps me see other things um, such as uh, like volume of like searches, how many people might be searching for it. I mean, you have to understand that that's all, uh, I don't wanna say made up numbers, but they're, I mean, they're predicted um, based on just information that we have. So, um, so you, you have to take the numbers with a grain of salt. But like that, that really just kind of gives you some context as to how big the term is and other. I mean, a, a bunch of other information around that. Um, and then when I'm doing keyword research, like I said, when I'm doing keyword research, I use those tools, and I just have like a an Excel doc or a Google Sheets um, open. And I'll literally just, uh, rather than putting the specific keywords, I'm putting topics and things like that and intent behind it. So, um, so I mean, I, I'm look, I'm, I'm, I might write down spicy. And the way that I interpret that when I'm actually writing the post is like controlling, I mean, how much spice is in it or like ingredients that control that spice, jalapeno versus something else. Um, and so when I'm when I'm doing that, like I, I'm basically just down the, the list in a Google sheet and I'm just writing down these words that are based around questions and other things that I'm seeing in Google and SEMrush and all these things. And so then when I'm done with my keyword research, I just have this like list of 10, 15, 20, 30, however many like topics or keywords um, that I, I go down. And then um, from there, it's I just I organize those into headings and topics and um, basically just out my, outline my post from there. Um, and if you have somebody writing, um, 
And a lot of times you can actually just outline your posts that way and then send them that outline. And then they don't even have to do the keyword research because they have this outline. Um, but that also kind of jumps right into kind of that next part, which we were talking about headings, which, uh, headings, we have to understand a lot of people write these headings or they, they try to write these headings based on these keywords and yes, keywords are important to users as well as Google, but we don't need to write them verbatim. Really the goal of headings is to help readers understand what our post is about without having to read everything word for word. Um, because we're, we're in a, a digital age where they're, they're coming on their phone or, or whatever, and they're just scanning the post. And so those headings stand out so that they're just like bullet items so that I understand, okay, like this, this recipe is to my level or, oh, I didn't realize that. Or like in a few seconds, I'm able to determine whether this post is relevant and qualified for what I'm looking for, essentially. I know that was a mouthful, so I apologize. Kind of going, it's a big topic. No, that, that was all great stuff. It is a big topic. So I was wondering if you would run through an example with me. Since you used banana bread earlier, I opened up uh, Uber Suggest because I know that's a free tool to a certain limit. And then I also opened up Google and I typed in banana bread into each. So with your method that you talked us through, are you saying that you kind of look at the keyword ideas that come up and you try to incorporate all of those or not all of them, but the ones that stand out for you within the post? So what I'm seeing is like banana bread, banana bread recipe, banana bread with chocolate chips, banana bread easy, banana bread healthy. And then on the Google side, favorite banana bread. So taking all of those other keywords outside of banana bread and trying to incorporate incorporate those into your post. Is that what you were kind of saying? Yes. Yeah, so like, um, I mean, a lot of people do, they're just like, okay, best or easy or like things like that. But really we have to determine what the intent is behind that. So like certain recipes, like if I see the word easy, I mean, there's certain recipes that are just going, I mean, they're, they're easy no matter what, even the classic way is easy, but there's some recipes where, I mean, the classic way is not necessarily the easy way. And so that's where easy will sometimes stand out to me. And then I determine, oh, is this recipe easy or is it more thorough? Or maybe it's like all fresh ingredients, whereas easy might connotate like some boxed mix or out of a can or something like that for some some of the ingredients. Um, so but more than that, like, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, it's it's recipe. So it's like how to make it. Um, but then as I'm going down, like I see like people also ask. Um, and I see is banana bread, a healthy snack, um, how to make banana bread from scratch. How do you keep banana bread moist? So now I'm starting to venture down. Like, so, I mean, I mean, again, first and foremost, it's the recipe, how to make. So I need to kind of focus on, okay, like, and that for food bloggers is, I mean, you kind of have like your internal template where it's just like, okay, ingredients, steps, like that sort of thing. Like that all connotates like recipe, um, but then, like, as I'm going through, like, people also ask, like, I see, why is banana bread bad, uh, bad for you? And I'm like, ah, that probably isn't one that I'm going to tackle. It's not relevant. Is it a healthy snack? I might touch on that. But if I'm not, like, a healthy food blogger, again, I'm just going to overlook that. Um, how to make banana bread from scratch. Um, this might be where I start to figure out, okay, is, like, this is a classic banana bread recipe. But, like, I mean, if there's a right way to do it and an easy way to do it, that might be something to address in here. Um, so like from scratch, like I might like use, I don't know, a few additional ingredients. Whereas if I want to cut a corner, if you don't have time, like I may just include 
hey, like instead of, I don't know, like, you know, like biscuits and gravy, like instead of like making the biscuits from scratch, you can go and buy just the, the can of biscuits if you prefer. Um, so I could add that step to kind of, again, tackle the easy part versus the from scratch part. Um, how to keep banana bread moist. Okay. That, that might be relevant because it's not like a dinner to where, I mean, there's, there's always, there's, there's leftovers with banana bread. It's, it's meant to sit, it's meant to kind of be this snack or whatever. Um, so how do I keep it moist? Um, and then the nice thing about the people also ask is if you see a question, you can click on it, um, to open it up. So I always click on it, open it up and then close it back up, but it adds a couple more questions every time you do that. And so I click on the relevant ones and I just kind of go down this rabbit hole. So I see, should I use baking soda or baking powder in banana bread? Um, again, I'm not the expert here, so you kind of have to determine, can bananas be too ripe for banana bread? Okay. So I'm going to maybe put as one of my notes ripeness because that might be something to address in there. Um, and then should you refrigerate banana bread? How long should you let banana bread cool? Um, why is my banana bread so dry? Like right here, like without even posting it, I'm getting some of these questions that I'm probably going to get as soon as I post it in the comments. So the ones that I, I, I mean, you guys are experts. So like you kind of have to like, like the other, the other part that I, I struggle with is, I mean, I'm not the expert here, so I, I kind of am just spitballing, but like if, if I, one thing I always tell my clients is like, trust your instinct. Like you're an expert, you're in a position like trust that, I mean, do the research, but you also have to kind of trust these instincts and know what, um, is going to be popular or not. So like, should I use baking soda or baking powder in banana bread? I mean, if that one's a smaller question that only a few people are asking, maybe you don't address it in the main part of it, but banana, like banana ripeness. I mean, again, if you have more of a mainstream audience or ones that like, maybe they don't cook every, like all day, every day. And they're not, I mean, as, um, handy in the kitchen. I mean, addressing the ripeness is going to be important here. Um, can you refrigerate it? How to keep it moist? Like these are all things, like, these are all notes that I'm writing down, um, in my Google sheet as I'm doing it. Um, so that I can then, again, even if you, you don't even have to determine right now, if it's something you're going to address, you can address, you can determine that later. That helps a lot. So basically it all comes back to what you said earlier about knowing what the intent is of your recipe and, and answering that question, it seems like this huge open question, like what's the intent? Well, making banana bread isn't the same for every food blogger. It's going to be different for a health food blogger um, than it is for someone like me who does not focus on health food at all. Mm -hmm. So keeping your brand in mind as you go through that question is helpful, right. right? If you see a question in Google, one of the people also ask questions and it kind of stands out to you as something that would align with your brand, then it's probably something that you should include. Yeah. So that helps a lot. So really, I mean, Google is more of a help than anything, I think, as I'm looking through Uber Suggest on banana bread. Google was way more enlightening for me as you kind of talked through that. But I know places like SEMrush and Uber Suggest also include volume, like keyword volume, and also um, it's SEO difficulty. Is that also keyword difficulty, right? So SD and KD, are that is that the same thing? Yeah, so KD is keyword difficulty. Um, I don't know what the other one is in Uber Suggest. I don't use Uber Suggest. I'm not a big Neil Patel fan. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, it's just, it's one of those tools that like they hit the mainstream, but it's, in my opinion, it's not... If, if I had the choice of using 
like a free tool versus just Google, I would just use Google. Um, and then as soon as I could hit a point to where I could pay for one, like it's going to be like, like to starting out, like it might not be SEM rush. It might be something cheaper, like, like that's more specific to just keyword research because SEM rush has a lot more features, but if it's just keyword research and I'm just like looking for just kind of an entry level like tool, um, I mean, keyword tool.io, um, there's a couple, uh, there's a couple others in there, um, that, I mean, they're like 20 or $30 a month, maybe, um, that I would probably start out with first before, but SEM rush is kind of SEM rush. Ahrefs, um, is another one. Um, those are kind of the tool that I recommend for anybody that's kind of growing and, and has room to pay. for. So that. if you are, no matter where you're at, whichever tool you're looking at, the metrics you want to look at would be volume and keyword difficulty. Is that correct? So I don't really look at keyword difficulty. I just look at keyword and I look at volume. And the only the only reason I look at volume is just to kind of help me determine like what's more popular. Like, so is, is it is how to make banana bread or banana bread recipe? Like which one has more volume? And so if it's banana bread recipe, I might use that for just because more people are using it sort of thing. So that's what I use volume for really. It also might also like for, um, like if I'm trying to figure out if I want to do like chocolate chip banana bread or chocolate banana bread or some other version, like it might help me determine like what's more popular in general. Um, so that's where I use volume keyword difficulty to be totally honest. Like, I mean, if I do like gluten-free bread, um, that probably has a high difficulty, but you have a lot of smaller or mid-sized blogs like killing it there because that's their niche. So like, I don't look at keyword difficulty. Like you want to base that off of, um, like whether it's your focus. Like if I have a, 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 if I have a food blog, that's all about just cookie recipes, I absolutely should have chocolate chip cookies on my site because I'm all about chocolate. I'm all about cookies. And I mean, that's a classic cookie. So if I don't have that, I'm doing my audience a disservice. And again, this also goes back to what you said earlier. It's not always, it's not all about SEO. I mean, there's other things. Um, also at some point, if you grow your authority on this cookie site, you will, you, you could find yourself just starting to rank at a certain point because you've grown your authority. So I don't look at keyword difficulty. I base that off of like how relevant is my, is that, is that to my audience and things like that. And, and then also I base it off of how well I'm doing. Like if I have this food site and I start to do better in cookies, like that tells me that my authority in cookies is actually growing. So I could probably push that, that envelope forward a little bit more in certain areas. That actually simplifies my life. So I'm really glad that you said that. <laughs> um, okay. So volume, you obviously don't want to go to the highest volume thing, unless it's an example, like you were talking about Jeff, where you are a cookie site and you kind of need to cover all the bases with all the cookies. Mm -hmm. If you're more of a generic blogger and you cover a lot of different types of recipes, mm -hmm do we try to stay away from those really high volume keywords? So the better way to do keyword difficulty, um, rather than looking at that, key, that KD in any of the tools, is when you do this in Google, like you can, I mean, you guys are smart. Like you guys, you guys know who your competitors are. You know what the sites are in your industry. So when I go to Banana Bread and I see that all recipes and Simply Recipes and Food Network in the kitchen are all like in the top five. I'm like, okay, this is getting pretty competitive. That being said, like I do see Sally's Baking Addiction and I see Salty Marshmallow in there. 
Um, I mean, they're not, those aren't small sites by any means, but like, they're not like the big behemoths necessarily either. Um, that, that's a better radar than using the KD score. Um, because yeah, so like, I mean, again, banana bread is obviously a competitive, uh, term, but like, if you do the, like the search for something you're thinking about making and you see that there are other sites that seem like they're in a similar range as you go for it. Uh, I love that. That's a great tool. And it's so easy because we do all know those sites that are bigger food mm-hmm. blogs, but they're not all recipes. They're not Food Network. So I love that. I think we underutilize Google. We underestimate it. I used to use it all the time. And I need to get back to doing that a little bit more because it's so easy. I thought you were going to say we underutilize our common sense, like, or just like our. Oh, that too. Like, I, I do think that, like, that again, too. Like, I don't mean this as a dig on anybody. Like, I do think that we overlook that. And mm-hmm. like, I deal with it all the time with clients. I'm like, like, what do you think? Like, a lot of times, like, they'll ask a question and I'll turn the question back on them. And I would say that 90% of the time they answer the question, mm. I mean, right. And we just, we just kind of have to trust our own instincts. Mm, I love that too. So you touched on heading, um, okay, I need to get this right, headings, is that what we call them? The like H2 headers inside yeah. of our blog posts? So there's titles and titles and headings. So your headings are the ones you see on the page. The title or the SEO title is sometimes where we get that confused and that's the, the page title that we optimize in Yoast and that shows up in Google search and all that stuff. Define that for me. So what we type as the focus key phrase, is that right, in Yoast, should that reflect exactly what's in our title of our blog post so i have or does it matter thoughts on that yoast key phrase um i personally like i mean i think it's a good starting point like if you're starting out like it just kind of helps you to see the basics of like keywords i mean but the problem with it is that i mean in yoast it's about keyword density but like um i always use the example like spicy bean dip like if i do a search for spicy bean dip Um, I mean, I have a lot of sites that show up for spicy bean dip, but then there's like a few in here that like, where is it? I know that, um, yeah. So like, um, there's a couple in here that they don't even, they they haven't even optimized themselves for spicy bean dip. Um, they've got like a homemade bean dip or a jalapeno bean dip. Um, Google's interpreting jalapeno bean dip as spicy bean dip because they understand that jalapenos are spicy. Um, or that jalapenos are a common ingredient in spicy bean dips. So the problem with Yoast is that if I put spicy bean dip, it's going to try to tell me to put spicy bean dip, that phrase, in there a lot more. The reality of it is is that I don't need to do that. Um, so I would much rather you understand the concepts. So it's a good starting point if you want to do it, like starting out. And I mean, even if you want to do it to where it's just like this checklist, just understand that you can you can you don't have to get those green lights. Like if it's a yellow light or even a red light, like, but then you review the checklist items and you're like, Oh no, like this, this still looks good. Trust that and keep going forward. Um, because I mean, Google understands it a lot better than Yoast does. And so I don't use that for that. That being said, I still trust Yoast. I love Yoast. I recommend Yoast because of sitemaps and robots.txt and a bunch of technical elements and other things like that. Um, so yeah, so, I don't put that in there. Um, but in regards to your original question, which was like, should I put that in the heading again? Like your heading should like when I'm in Google or when I'm coming from social media or whatever, and I click on something, the heading should reaffirm what I clicked on. So you don't want it too long. Like you want it to be just kind of punchy. Like, so if I clicked on 
spicy bean dip, then the heading should be something that basically is spicy bean dip. Okay, so it could be a variation like delicious spicy bean dip recipe. Yeah, I mean, typically I, I put more identifiers in like the SEO title where I have a little bit more space in my heading, my main heading. I try to keep that a little bit more to the point um, rather than like, but because that should be easy to read. Also, you don't want to get too long with it. Um, the other part is, is like you also have areas underneath your heading to include identifiers such as like easy or, I mean, gluten-free or, or whatever those might be. Um, cause you have, you can add a description and, and other things right there above the fold. So, I mean, I usually try to just keep it simple, um, there when we're on the page itself. Okay. So simple is best within the title. Mm-hmm. And for H2s, that is basically just a way to let your user understand and Google understand mm-hmm. the gist of the post, correct? Correct. Okay. And I think food bloggers have gotten really good at that. I think even a couple of years ago, we were a little bit confused about how to use those. But every post I look at that's on the first page of Google for whatever the topic is, I think people do that really well. You can scroll through and see right away what it's about, what they're covering. Are they getting Mm -hmm. into the details about why banana bread is moist when it's in the fridge or whatever? Yeah. Um, But it's a topic that a lot of food bloggers question, but I feel like collectively we're kind of getting that a little bit more. Thanks to experts like you. (laughs) The biggest critique I have on it is really just a lot of people do it like repetitively where they're trying to input that keyword or keyword phrase. So like spicy bean dip, they'll include in all or most of their H2s. Like you want to make it flow. You like you don't want people to feel like it's robotic and stuff like that. Again, we're going after understanding and intent so that people scanning and stuff. But yeah, like I think the general consensus behind headings is that people are better understanding them. So when Yoast doesn't give me a green light and it says you need to have another keyword in your H2 headings or whatever, however it words that, I don't necessarily need to listen if I feel like I've covered it enough, correct? Correct. Okay. Because, dang it, that green light. <laughs> we all want that green light. <laughs> yep. No, and that's that's a perfectionist sort of thing. Like You just have to learn that Yoast might actually be leading you astray. Like We did a training on this a while ago where... I actually took two posts and like I took one that was in the red that was actually ranking and I optimized it to get green. And when we asked users like which one felt better, like the the non Yoast optimized one felt better because the other one felt so robotic. Oh, see, that's good to hear. You just gave me permission and many (laughs) other people permission to not rely on that so heavily. And (laughs) we're condensing all of these massive... uh, (laughs) topics into just a few minutes. I know, right? We are giving a 101 course on SEO in 45 minutes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, But categories is another thing that I've seen tossed around in the forums lately, because as we build our content up, we've got all of this stuff and we don't know how to categorize them, myself included. I started out with you know, appetizers, salad, soup, breakfast, like maybe 10 categories. And I still have those 10 categories and I have like 800 and some recipes squeezed into those categories. So 
before I dig in, I just <laughs> want to know, should I, is this the right way to do it? Should I leave it alone? Should I add more categories? How do I go about that? Yeah. So, um, so first actually, so with categories, like I get questions about categories and tags all the time. Um, in general, I would say I don't have like a lot of like specifics there. I mean, cause you have a lot of flexibility for food bloggers. However, I always tell people, I'm like, honestly, like if I were a food blogger setting it up today, like I would set up my topics and subtopics as categories and even subcategories. Um, and then I would have my tags all ingredient based. Um, that seems to be a really good way to set things up. It also makes for a really good recipe index if you customize it and stuff. Um, but to your question about like categories and expanding, yes, absolutely. Like if you have like the 10 categories that you started with, I mean, really don't, you don't need to expand those, but you want to, you want to look at like how many topic or like, like, I don't know, like appetizers, for instance, if appetizers has a couple hundred recipes in it, then, I mean, that's too big for, I mean, and there's no other way to break that up. Like that's really too big for somebody to see what's in there. So you want to figure out like, okay, like how can I break this up so that people can, so that I surface my content so that it's easier to find. So within uh, appetizers, and you can either do subcategories or you can just do other categories and then just organize them so that they are in drop downs and things like that. But like, I mean, healthy appetizers versus finger foods versus dips. Like if you have um, within your appetizers, you have a bunch of like dips and salsas or something like that. I mean, you can create another category specifically for dips or salsas or finger foods. And again, that's just helping you to break that content up and it helps the user find specifics within that content because as a category grows, I mean, it's kind of like, like I always use Amazon as an example. Like if, I mean, because like in the blogging world, like we're told that like, oh, we should only have 15 categories and we should only have like X amount of number of whatever. Like, no, that's all BS. Like it depends on how big and intricate our like our topics and content is because amazon.com like if they were limited to how many categories and topics they had like nobody would use the site like they had they literally have hundreds of thousands of categories because of how many products and like topics and all that stuff that they have we need to do the same we don't want to do it too early so if i only have five dips on my site within like appetizers or whatever I probably shouldn't create a dips category at that point, but if I have, I don't know, more than a dozen or 15, that's when I can probably start to, then there's no real number. Like that's just kind of my number. Like if I have more than 12 or 15, then I'm probably like, I'm considering it. Okay. That helps clear things up. I have a ton of chili recipes, so I've been considering yeah. creating a chili category. Do you have like soups? Is, it, is that what it's under right e- now? Yes. It's under soups right now. Yeah. And that's yeah. where you can break up soups, if, especially if soups is big, break it up into chilies. And it, if you only have a couple stews, like maybe you don't do stews yet. But yeah, like that's exactly how you should do it. Thank you. That helped a lot. Let's see. What else in just a minute or two can we cover about categories? Do you feel like you covered everything you wanted to say? Um, without going too far down a rabbit hole, that's probably a good kind of on the surface. I mean, because categories itself can get pretty, pretty. I mean, all these topics really can get deep. Um, but yeah, that's probably a good just kind of on the surface okay. covering for that. And you said tags are good to keep more ingredient based. What about um, diet based? Do you recommend using tags for that as well? Really? I mean, it's, it's all up to you and how like is best organized. If I was doing it today, like I would have dietary stuff as categories just cause that's more topical. And then my ingredients is purely tags. 
but you don't have to set it that way. And I, I see a lot of people doing different things. That's just how I, I have kind of come just because ingredients can grow. And so like that can be a pretty big list. And so if you just designate that to tags, then it's an easy way to, to segment those. All right, Jeff. Well, wow. We've scratched the surface on many really big uh, SEO food blogging topics. And this has helped me a lot. I'm hoping that it helps other food bloggers as well. I really think it will. Well, thanks again, Jeff. Your insight has been much appreciated today. Thank you for sharing all of this value. Um, we will put together a show notes page for you. If anyone wants to go look at that, you can find it at eatblogtalk.com forward slash hashtag Jeff. Jeff, I know that you have a new version of your course and a bunch of other tools that you are launching soon. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So yeah, so we're, we're getting ready to relaunch our community, um, which is the SEO course and things like that. But um, we're going to have our own platform. Um, but we're also going to be able to kind of separate some things a little bit easier. Um, so you'll have the um, kind of just digest content and work through it, like through the community and more of like a forum based. But we're also um, shortly after launching, we're actually going to be putting together more formal courses that you'll as a member, you'll have access to, but they'll be more teachable like courses to where you go through like A to Z sort of uh, modules because um, we have a lot of people that want to learn that way. Um, and then we're um, we're expanding our audits right now. So we, we do a lot of audits for clients. We have been for a while, but we're also building tools um, to help people kind of keep an eye on their content a whole lot more and more regular. So, I mean, it's going to be kind of an ongoing audit, um, but we'll be, we'll be launching those, I mean, here in the next month or so. So, um, yeah, but... Um, as far as, I mean, our course or our membership, um, we did create a discount code for your community. Um, so we're going to be launching an annual version of our community. Up to this point, we've only done monthly just because of a bunch of other things. But um, you can use the discount code EATBLOGTALK, all one word. Um, we'll include that in the show notes as well. But um, EATBLOGTALK, um, and that'll get you the hashtag Jeff course community um, for $99 for the whole year. Awesome. Thank you so much for offering that. I hope people yep. take you up on that. And I'm excited to check it out myself. So thank you for putting up with my questions today. I'm not <laughs> um, by any means an SEO girl. <laughs> so thank you for answering everything. Most people aren't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, that's good to know. That's why we have people like you, right? That's why I have a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We... I think we all know where to find you, but why don't you reiterate where we can find you online, Jeff? Yeah. So if you just hashtag Jeff.com um, is our website, all spelled out. I can't get the domain with the, the hashtag symbol. Um, <laughs> hashtag Jeff.com. Um, email just hello at hashtag Jeff.com. Um, and then I, I mean, on Instagram, a lot of people reach out to me on at hashtag Jeff. We're also on Facebook as well. So you can search us there, but Email is probably the best or our website for information um, and sign up for the course and all that stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Jeff, for being here. And thank you for listening today, food bloggers. I will see you next time. We're glad you could join us on this episode of Eat Blog Talk. For more resources based on today's discussion, as well as show notes and an opportunity to be on a future episode of the show, be sure to head to eatblogtalk.com. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll be here to feed you on Eat Blog Talk.